This is episode number two. We'll be discussing Legend of Oz, Dorothy's Return, and Ed Catmull's book, Creativity, Inc. We're your hosts, Dan Bruce, Laura Blewett, and Josh Sourman. This is Animcast. Thank you both for coming. Emerald City needs all the heart and courage it can get right now. You can count on us. Scarecrow to Dorothy. Come in, Dorothy. Come back to the world of a timeless classic. Hi, kiddo. An evil jester is threatening us. And you are the only one who can help us. And experience a whole new adventure. Fly, my baby. Dorothy will stop you. Aren't I quivering? Now to help her old friends. I have a brilliant plan. Run! Run? That's the plan? Dorothy's teaming up with a whole new cast of characters. So this is the girl who vanquishes wicked witches. I thought you'd be taller. You are a fabulous owl. My name is Wiser. Timber! A giant marshmallow? Marshall Mallow, don't eat the candy and no licking. The dainty China Princess! You mustn't go. Marshall Mallow will keep me safe. You have my word. She's cute. Appearance isn't everything. The name's Mallow, not shallow. Yeah, so I guess we'll get right into story and plot. How'd you guys feel about the intro of the movie with um, the whole Lion Witch, or I guess Lion Scarecrow, Tin Man? Are we first going to skip the longest credits known to man? Oh, no, we are not. Let's go into <laughs> the Because longest. before any characters were introduced, the opening credits would not end. And maybe it felt very long because it was not very dynamic. Yeah, I was going to say, I normally like camera. it when they'll put credits in the beginning if it's beautiful and it really kind of pays tribute to like the older animation and stuff. Right, yeah. did it and if it adds to the story mm-hmm. instead of being a tornado homage. Which I guess technically it did add to the story because they were hit by another tornado, apparently. Which they are in Kansas, so I guess that's not too uncommon. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess the the static camera for me killed it. Or made yeah. it feel really long. I'm just trying to think of other other credits in animated films and how they do them. And a lot of them, just off the top of my head, before there are any opening credits, you simply have the the like an opening scene of characters introduced. I mean, my first thought is like finding Nemo opens with the characters, the, the Marlin and wife out in their anemone, 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 or toy story begins with, right. It shows the title of the film very quickly, but then it's got the whole scene of Andy playing and the credits, the credits are over. Are Randy over, Newman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I guess it it just made me think, you know, the beginning of a film is so important to establish the film itself. And if you're going to start with the credits, I feel like you got to start with something more than just a tornado with random objects that have people's names on them. Right. Flying in front of you. No, that's true. I mean, granted, I'll give them credit in the credits for at least trying to put some objects in there that referred to different characters that's true <laughs> like the tin man's <laughs> uh little oil can was kelsey Grammer's credit and Uh-oh. whatnot but yes it was very long <laughs> <laughs> and then okay so then it goes into so dorothy sings a song right immediately about wanting to yeah. fix everything is that yeah. the song yeah so is she saying she wants to fix everything about like oh her house is getting condemned and stuff like that she wants to be able to help her and uncle? I think so. And the town. She's mm-hmm. like going through the town. Right. And she feels so small, though. That was a, a line in the yeah. song as well. 
And should we point out at this point that it's uh, Leah Michelle of Glee fame and other stuff, probably. Maybe Broadway people know more. She's probably on Broadway. Yeah. I think something. she was in Spring Awakening as well. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so she is the voice of Dorothy. And so if you like Leah Michelle music, then you might like this because you may not like the music that was written for her to sing, but right, I guess we, I just <laughs> want to talk about the overarching song, the plot mm-hmm. Oh, the songs, the songs. Let's just go into the songs sure. first because there was a lot of them and I can't remember any of them. <laughs> Is that bad? And I guess it's just coming off of frozen and I still have that song stuck in my head, but I don't know if that's just really good marketing. I'm not a musical guy. I know both of you guys have seen and watched and loved musicals and mm-hmm. I can't, mm-hmm can't say that i do (laughs) but so like was this just a swing and a miss or that i can't remember one but i can in other movies or well i feel like um actually i re-listened to the soundtrack and i did listen i did hear like some like musical themes between a few of the songs and i think that's great that's normal but i think what was different about it there was no like climactic song like there was no like and a lot of the songs kind of had a different style almost to it. Like there was a song about candy that was kind of more like rock poppy. <laughs> and there were other songs that were really like wistful and like lovey dovey that kind of didn't blend really well. Mm. And I didn't remember any of the songs either walking out, which is weird because I do love musicals. So I thought I'd remember one tune, but for some reason they kind of all just, I don't know, like wiped They're just too head. like conservative on their music. I felt like there was a lot of like, you know, I mean, Leah, her voice was amazing in it, but I didn't think anything was too, like, dramatic or, like, I don't know. Yeah, when you think about something like just the typical Broadway musical, it's split into two acts, right? And the lead-up to the biggest song is always kind of the the act one finale is the big epic song. And that's kind of what Let It Go plays in Frozen. Mm -hmm. The role it plays is being this really epic climactic song of, like, this is the emotional thing happening to, you know, this character and... It kind of just, like, the point of it, at least, is to, to really just kind of drive home the the whole theme of the film. Whereas, I think you're totally right, Laura, that there was no... So there is a method of madness for a musical, but this did it's not like, follow the... Yeah, yeah. and this <laughs> didn't have because it wasn't one. story structure as much as, you know, I don't think that they really followed acts as much. I guess no. To swing back to the plot, it felt like, okay, there was like, okay, we get a little scene. And it would go into a musical number where she would sing to her animals mm-hmm. about the fixing. And then we'd go to another scene, to Oz through the rainbow. And can we point out that, that she like goes to like a mountaintop to look down at Kansas where yes. the rainbow shows up? Yeah. I was sitting there and I was like, when did mountains show up in Kansas? <laughs> just, it's just a really, really big hill, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the tornado pushed it up. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what just a minor point, but I was like... <laughs> This looks like L.A., not <laughs> Kansas. <laughs> um, oh, so the one point I liked the actual rainbow when it was like coming in because I was like, oh, that's a really clever way of doing that. Have the rainbow be like a teleporter. But the one thing that like dragged me out was the hand that popped in yeah. for the comic relief. Yeah, that the hand thing was weird. Do you the think it was, was weird, for right? 3D? Because <laughs> it. Oh, did they release this in 3D? Yeah, I believe so. Oh, did they? I didn't even know I that. I think they did. Oh, if I'm wrong about that. But that's what I would assume because it was I'll such a big hand coming out in your face and like pulling her in. would have yeah, been like if we I were wearing 3D glasses, be like, whoa. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so it could have been, yeah, a 3D trick. But Well, so we discovered that Dorothy's in trouble, right? Or not Dorothy, but Oz is in trouble. Well, I we guess don't we don't know how it got to that. 
Yeah, we find out that the jester and his motivation is to his motivation rule Oz. is to rule Oz with an iron fist, apparently. <laughs> right. <laughs> All on his own. Which I found strange. Uh, Glinda the Good Witch is captured really early on in the film. Brought yeah. to him, which she finds very comical. <laughs> and is just immediately changed into a marionette <laughs> without any like magical resistance at all even though her wand was stolen but i guess is that like a point where it's like uh, you don't have any more magical power after your wand stolen maybe and he said it, it got kind of dark really quickly he was like i will suck out your soul <laughs> as part of the magic spell and then he like turned her into a marionette it was like whoa <laughs> oh man we go from a rainbow with a hand that grabs somebody for comic relief to sucking out glinda's soul <laughs> like a dementor in harry potter <laughs> and so and apparently he's captured every other ruler of oz which they don't really go into um that much uh, except for the candy apple general it's general Company. yeah yeah Ruler of the candy world, which we find later on in the film. But who are all those other people? <laughs> One of them, I think, was a caricature of the Emerald City people. Like, it was a guy with red hair and a green suit, which oh. from the original film, those are like the Emerald City people with like right. goofy haircuts. He's but the guy that answers the door. <laughs> yeah, somebody like that. And so I was just gathering that, that that was probably the case. The rest, I have no idea. Right, but it's just so strange that no one... I feel like Oz is very vulnerable to... Anyone that wants to do anything. Yeah, <laughs> Anyone that, that wants to do anything evil, no one knows what to do after right. that. They have armies, though. They do have, like, there's a candy army, and there's a porcelain-like military as well, but none of them fight anyone <laughs> unless Dorothy's there. I never realized that Oz was this strange conglomeration of random worlds. I did not know that as well. Well, I mean, there is the Munchkin Land, but that's the only one. Yeah, I was just kind of assumed that that was, like, Hobbiton in <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Like, there's the area with these kind of this random group of people and the rest is sort of everybody else that apparently also involves tin people and scarecrows and cowardly lions. Oh, right. But they could do like a, uh, a George Lucas straight to uh, TV Chewbacca Wookiee episode. Oh, <laughs> wow. Christmas special. <laughs> Christmas special. <laughs> cowardly lion goes back home. Think about it. That's true. It could be great. You <laughs> could have a family. <laughs> Just as bad as Chewbacca's. <laughs> it is never explained why Dorothy is necessary. Yes. Never explained, really. Right. Is that in books or anything? Like I don't know. Well, one fact about this movie is that it was, I believe, written by... This is not an original Oz right. story. Because the original author, I believe Frank Baum is his mm -hmm. name, wrote numerous books about Oz. Uh, and I think that the Wizard of Oz, like the famous film, is kind of a adaptation and conglomeration of some of them. But I believe this one was written by his grandson. Roger Stantenbaum. Roger Stantenbaum, who, who wrote this. And so there wasn't... Loosely based okay. off of uh, Dorothy of Oz. Okay. Is his book. That, that's the original? That is Who wrote Dorothy grandson. of Oz? Uh, that's his grandson wrote Dorothy of Oz. Okay. We're talking about the journey, right? The hero going yeah. on a journey. Usually when a hero goes on a journey, like... Each place the hero goes does something to advance or it does something to to change the protagonist, right? The person who's dealing with whatever. It's kind of a different aspect of the quest or of their character or something is being tested, right? Or is being mm -hmm. expounded upon. So, you know, again, like the Lord of the Rings, right? When 
when they're in the the mountains going in circles and and Gollum is following them or when they're uh actually in Mordor or when they're like each of these when they're fighting against um Shelob or when when Frodo sends Sam away right, right. each of these are like steps in different places where something important is happening because of the place right the place causes yeah the relationships your surroundings will affect your what happens i guess <laughs> right right and that's part of the journey right Be- that's what makes the journey right. itself the story these worlds that she was going to didn't they they were like ways that she got people new people to go along with her on the journey like yes. got another she collected her like right her posse of new characters which yeah. follows the how you know the wizard of oz works um the one with judy garland cuz she keeps you know getting more and more characters along the way but as you're saying they each are so they have all this depth so like you know one person helps her you know do something else and the next person helps her do another thing but our extra characters didn't seem to do much else in the movie besides be more people <laughs> in yeah the scene. just to go along with her i feel like the yeah. only one though was wiser who actually learned to fly and saved her at the end that's true <laughs> that was the only like real because really the china yeah the China princess, whatever her name, or China, she was worthless. I don't know what her <laughs> character was all about. Yeah. She was more of like a deterrent more than. <laughs> well, what I was confused about her, why did they cut to like her getting all these suitors and why was Marshall Mello like her number one suitor off the bat? There's something I was missing from that. You mean their whole, that scene? like how she fell in love with him? Yeah, so fast. <laughs> no, there was no. There was nothing. Real. It was just kind of Well, like, he just could sing. Yeah. Yeah, he's saying it maybe it, right? it was presumed because when the jester sent an earthquake that was breaking all the china, he like took her Did and protected her, her from oh, yeah. right. being destroyed. Okay. But then she never acknowledged that. She never like mentioned, Oh man, thank you so much. Now I'm in love with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah There's no no like She did that have that moment. like bitter, you know Oh, you're you're with Dorothy. <laughs> you can't cross through China world or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh gosh. And then she changed her mind with no, right? Because she saw she broken saw China broken around. Sh- yeah. <laughs> so the reason she wouldn't let them pass through her land was because things might break, because the jester would send earthquakes. But then she decided to go along because things were breaking. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I guess. We do have to talk about like the number one joke in the whole movie. Oh as yes. The Wall of China. <laughs> that, that elicited the biggest laugh yes. <laughs> in the theater. <laughs> Out of like probably the 12 people in the room. <laughs> that was the biggest laugh. Which was, because this is an audio format, that the Great Wall of China was made of teacups. Yes, it was yeah. stacks of teacups. Of yeah, and pieces of just China. <laughs> so that was the best bad pun. Because they tried a couple. Yeah. They had the courtroom with candy, and they tried your... I, yeah, like with judged by a jury The peanut peeps. gallery. The peanut gallery <laughs> was full of circus peanuts. The, <laughs> I thought the candy world was the funniest. Yeah. The, like that. Which they, I feel like they spent the least amount of time in the candy world. Yeah. Because they... Well, they did have the musical number of eating the candy. But right. that was about... And then it was like straight to the court scene. Which I feel like most of the situations that she got out of was she just had to say her name. She has to be like, oh, I'm Dorothy. Oh, you're Dorothy. Go yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
That's true. Her, she did not know her celebrity. Yet. Her name carries major cachet. Yeah. <laughs> she can get out of things. <laughs> yeah. Which I feel like she's going to have a troubled childhood. She's going to be like one of those child actors that's just like, just going to go crazy. I was somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you not realize I who, I, who I am? <laughs> In her little Kansas town. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can I get out of a speeding ticket? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's full of bad puns. With the peeps, with the peanut gallery, the jawbreaker is the, the judge, which I actually thought was a pretty funny-looking character. I, I liked I, him. Yeah, I liked Even him. Even though he's like really similar to um, the candy world in Wreck-It Ralph with the uh, sour, sour bill. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. he is. He's he was almost like a, you know, like a sour drop thing, but with a nose. He just had like an extra little nose. Yeah, and a candy wig, <laughs> and like a one candy of those wig. old judge wigs. <laughs> yeah, made of like taffy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good. I enjoyed the candy world too. I like that one. But I also like the design of a lot of the people in the China world. I liked like the soldier. The look of the soldiers were really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they... The character, I guess, let's talk about character design because there's a lot of good and a lot of bad. Yeah, really hit or miss in this movie. Yeah, it was all over the place. You could tell a lot of people were designing and modeling these characters. But they only no. had one character designer in the credits, mm, which confused I, me. I wonder if it was an inconsistent design, right? Or whether like somebody was drawing lots of pictures and whoever was in charge was picking things that didn't weren't very cohesive yeah it did Mm -hmm. not feel very cohesive i felt like maybe the world seemed a big but there was a lot of characters i do have to admit there's Mm -hmm. a lot of characters in this for the budget of the film because it had quite a few worlds quite a few extras that all need modeled all need rigged which is insane to me but i guess we should start with the humanoid people just regular people in the town look very strange to me not good. Yes, <laughs> I would say as character design goes. <laughs> they they hit that uncanny valley, not appealing 3D characters. And I don't know why that they would, because they, they got appeal out of like, Glinda looked really good. Mm-hmm. And um, the China princess, she looked really good. But Dorothy was just very bland. And I don't know, maybe if they just want you to project your own self onto, I mean, because she is kind of like the every... The every man or the every woman mm-hmm. that you're supposed to like feel for or like project yourself onto, but I don't know her her design just I did not grab me. <laughs> yeah, it's like her her eyes were too small. Yeah, I think there wasn't enough emphasis on the eyes. Like usually you kind of darken the areas around the eyes so your eye is drawn, so the viewer's eye is drawn to the mm-hmm. contrast yeah. because eyes are like the most important. They're the first thing you look at, right, in real life, and so it's the same thing in animation. And so there's something about her eyes for me that just mm-hmm. was kind of, I don't know if they weren't I mean, something big enough like to face be appealing. shape, I guess. I don't know. It just seemed too round. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But even like the characters in the town still had that like, they were built where it was almost too on model to an actual human, where it was like, this is too uncanny. <laughs> yeah. Just pushed the design a little more maybe. Yeah. But then there were some characters who I thought were were well designed. Like you you mentioned the China Princess was good. I thought Glinda was very good. Very good, yeah. I liked Glinda. Um, I Scarecrow liked, I didn't mind. I liked Scarecrow Carrie and Tin Lion. Man. I liked both of them. They were pretty similar kind of in body shape. Like yeah, very skinny basic. and big head and all that. But I liked both of them. Um and I liked the marshmallow guy okay. Yeah. He had cool little details like the little um 
like cool whip tops on his little yeah for his epaulets his epaulets yeah and then with the little dangly licorice yeah which is nice <laughs> yeah but then okay let's get in probably my least favorite character design is toto <laughs> what happened to that dog <laughs> as <laughs> as the film started um my wife leaned over to me and she said what's that cat doing there oh, <laughs> oh really no <laughs> <laughs> so toto did not come across as a dog to Toto. at least one person. And also, theater. I feel like, okay, the Disney format, and I, I'm pretty sure people have talked this, about this online, and maybe we've even discussed it, but the Disney format of always having, like, that dog-like uh, sidekick that's not a dog. I felt like Togo, Toto, they went complete opposite. It's a dog, but it didn't feel like a dog to me. <laughs> it was, like, burping and doing things where you're like, right. dogs wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't have much of a character. He's just kind of a. He's just there. Uh, he Even though there. he did, he did have one instance where he did pull the rope on the curtain to fall on the jester. Yeah, in the he's closing like act. He's a non-entity, and then he defeats. He defeats his jester. the jester. Yeah. yeah. Just with curiosity, <laughs> which is more cat-like. So I don't know. <laughs> I think your wife's onto something. Yeah. <laughs> but his little. I think my my main thing was his little like little back legs and body but then he had like no snout he was just a sphere of hair yeah for his yeah. head and i think that's what made him feel like a cat yeah was he had like very little snout which is a very cat-like thing but then there's wiser the big owl um which was funny because i guess the joke is his name he's wiser so he knows a lot of things and talks a lot and once again had no no effect on the plot no well i mean he did save her at the end but that had nothing to do with the fact that he knew stuff. Like That's there was true. no character change except for he like flapped his wings really hard because he cared about Dorothy. That's true. Guess we should go into and talk about animation. Well, can we first talk about the best character in the entire film? Yes. Which was as Dorothy is like she tears a branch off of a tree. Turns out tree is alive, <laughs> not so happy about having a branch amputated. And so they're like, We need to get across this river because the yellow brick road bridge bridges out has been destroyed and suddenly you hear is this this probably the also like the okay go on though suddenly you hear in this wonderful deep british accent (laughs) a tree who like tells her to come over here it is patrick stewart (laughs) in tree form big old tree (laughs) who's like cut me down and make me into a boat Perfect. Patrick Stewart's shining moment in all of cinema. And this is probably the strangest musical number when like little mice people show up and hang out with the China princess. And also some beavers just across the river are like, hey, we'll help you build this boat. Which I'm like, if you have this much help and this much wood, you just rebuild the bridge for everyone. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but then Patrick Stewart couldn't be on the journey, I guess. Right. That's <laughs> Gilligan's Island logic right. right there. Which also I would love to hear like the pitch to Patrick Stewart about like his character because it would just be, okay, you're going to be a tree. Then you're going to be a boat. <laughs> then you're going to be a tank. <laughs> and then it's we're like, going to pay you a lot of money. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, who would not take that? So you can't blame the guy. <laughs> who gets to play a tree, a tank, and a boat in a movie? That's a good point. <laughs> and then the the mice and the beavers disappear. Yeah, they're done. They're just Which content. is weird because the mice wanted to get across the bridge. And so 
The bridge is not rebuilt. That's true. The boat is built. And the mice... The mice did not take a ride on the boat. <laughs> At least sure. we are not led to believe. That. I don't know. Right. Maybe they're on the bottom of the ship. Mm. And they're still, still hanging out yeah. inside that tank. Yeah. They could have been in there. Going, man, this is a rough ride. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, hold on. I guess the, the last character, though. I wouldn't say the best designed, but the jester was pretty good. He was by far the most entertaining character. Yes. I think. I think they spent whoever animated the jester did a good job yeah lots of body mechanics twirling around jumping around he was very physical lots of physical comedy and just physical acting i I did think martin short did an awesome job though as the jester i mean he's very martin short he was yeah probably like he took that script and did the best he could do with it he made it very funny um little evil (laughs) yeah he, he had his funny moments um, and I love seeing comedians in um, animation that are, don't just have, like, those one-liners, but really, like, take on a goofy role, you know, like Robin Williams with the genie and stuff like that, because I think it's a perfect, like, marriage of comedian and then, you know, an animator who can really, like, visualize it. So Yeah, he was the my medium's favorite. pretty, they're pretty similar. They're like, mm-hmm. it's just having fun. So, yeah. And they <laughs> understand that. Right. <laughs> Anything else on the characters? Well, I was just going to say is that um, one of the reasons why I didn't talk about, I guess, the characters very much is I thought that a lot of them were, weren't were memorable. Like, they didn't have, they were kind of flat, flat mm. characters. And they didn't have any, like, character arcs. Not even, like, small ones, I felt like. So, that was Itch. my review. Yeah, I know. Ouch. I mean, is there totally nothing worse awesome. than to be forgettable <laughs> in, in, in a film? That is the worst thing I've ever said. But, yeah, I don't know. I feel like the only character that I would love to see go on in, like, another role is Marshall mallows <laughs> it's probably the only yeah. one see what happens next yeah yeah i want him to like leave that china princess <laughs> just go off on his own on his own, on his own adventure like you know fighting the s'more monster i don't know right <laughs> how awesome would that be already we have a better plot <laughs> in the film itself protecting candy kingdom against the s'more monster <laughs> who just wants some more <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> That's why there are all the signs, no eating the candy. Oh, right. Because of the s'more monsters. Who wants to eat the candy? <laughs> he this just wants good. some s'more. Man. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> Let's get some investors right now. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know it was that easy. <laughs> so I guess I wanted to talk about this animation that they had here, which was all over the place for me. All over the place. Yes. So there would be a scene that would be like, oh, this is pretty well animated. And then it would go into what happened. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. Um, I guess my major thing with it was um, there's this thing called motion blur that animators put on animation to give it a more realistic look. And this film seems like they left it off. Or just left the dial at the same setting throughout the whole thing, which you you probably should not do. (laughs) But I had no idea. I was looking too hard at shots for motion blur that it just just sticks. It sticks too hard in your head when there's no motion blur. And I don't know if you guys felt that as well. But that was my number one complaint, which I could not see any motion blur at all. I 100% agree with that. (laughs) I mean, I I I was feeling weird throughout the movie about the animation and it was sometime near the end, like the kind of last battle 
where I was like, there's no motion blur in this because the only time I saw it in the entire film was there's one point where the jester was spinning really fast in a circle mm-hmm. and I saw that his arms were blurred a bit, uh, but the rest of it, I was looking at mouths. Mouth movement is usually because you would have to hit really big poses in, yeah. and you could see the mouths being blurred. But the thing that threw me off was all of the flying monkey scenes when they're flying, they look very plastered onto the frame because their wings are beating, but there's no blur. <laughs> yeah. And it, it really stuck out. <laughs> um, I guess the quality level of animation, like the jester was animated really well, which that's a character that you would probably give to like one of your senior animators anyways. But then Dorothy's scenes, they were just all over the place. There was like nothing happening <laughs> in, in the animation. It wasn't like being pushed or there wasn't anything dynamic happening. And it just stuck. There was this little, I don't know, what, what would you even call that? Well, it was very robotic, I guess. It was, yeah, it was very robotic. It was very kind of cliche, standard. There was, you know, one of the first things that most studios do when when they create a character is to do walk cycles. Yeah. Send it for walk like cycles. How this character because, is going to walk. Yeah, because each character moves so differently. I feel like they skipped that step on a lot of characters. Yeah, it how seems they like they were going to move. It seems like they just applied standard walk to everybody, that yeah. everybody just walks, in, unless it's a very weirdly shaped character like right, Wiser. Like Wiser, yeah, was the character that, which he kind of um, he kind of bumbled around, which was nice. He mm-hmm. just kind of hopped and bumbled. Um, but everyone else, yeah, was just walks. And then the I guess the China princess, she kind of just glided because she couldn't see her feet. Right, right. Or but she I, was in a bag most of the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I also felt... I mean, I feel like a part of that too is the acting choices. Just that one of the first things you're also taught with animation is usually don't go with your first thought. Right. Because your first inclination is probably going to be something cliche. Something cliche. It's already been done. Yes. Yeah. Something that's been, been and oftentimes done to death. Mm-hmm. And you may not even realize it because you've seen it so many times. It's like, oh, this is how someone, you know, reacts when they're angry or this is how someone reacts when they're sad or this is how you know so so the goal is to try to think what would this character do and it's almost like you want to get yourself that's why they always do reference is you want to get yourself into the mindset of clearing your mind and then going through the motions and then trying a bunch of things and then seeing what comes out of just acting out what's happening so they didn't reference any little female girls walking around and exploring and stuff like yeah, I would. Like I would think not, but maybe cycles. they did. I don't want to say that they didn't, but it didn't it feel felt like. Yeah, it right. felt like they didn't, didn't feel natural, Mm-mm. or or it just felt so standard. Mm-hmm. Well, the first song was very strange as well because it was like she just needs to get from here to there, so it was just like have her walk from here to there, and then say hi to that little girl, and then have her walk from there to over there, and then she looks at something else, <laughs> and then climb the Kansas mountain. Right. Yes. <laughs> So there wasn't creative staging, I guess. Is that what you would call it for a shot like that? Choreography, that's what I would think during a song. But Yeah, because the shots also felt very standard. Like outside of the animation itself, the, the mm-hmm. layout and the, the, I don't know if you say the boarding, yeah, the staging, the camera angles, all that felt felt very standard. Right. Which I guess, I mean, like, I, and I guess that comes with experience and... Um, but it's also this movie's budget was only $70 million. So I don't know what the restraints were on like how many shots animators are animating or 
how long they had to do things, but I can kind of tell that, it, you know, from doing, if you go to like Monsters University, it was like over $300 million, and then this was $70 million. That you can kind of see the difference in a third of the budget or under that. <laughs> right. And I don't want to, I don't want to like attack the animators too no, much because yeah. I'm sure they were doing the best that they could. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's funny because uh, we looked up, it was a uh, Piranha animation studio, which also did um, planes, uh, all the Tinkerbell movies and just looking at their animation reel, you can tell that they can animate. Yeah. And they're also, um, they do a lot of heavy visual effects as well. Um, but they are also have a, you know, a pretty good track record for, I mean, it's all kind of lower end. I don't even say It's like made for home release. Yes. Because they are based in India. It's an India studio. Um, Home release. But I guess the last Tinkerbell movie, was that theatrical release? I think that was home release. Was that home as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was just planes that kind of made it to the forefront? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I thought that scene, though... um, with the ship when they were in the dark, they're going through a cave or something with all the, the fireflies and stuff. That was kind of cute. I liked it. I like that. I yeah, like that too. It was pretty. You could tell they put a lot of time. I just like that, that even just that story point mm-hmm. of the jester kind of like leading them in the wrong direction in like right. a beautiful way. They yeah. thought they were in the clear. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't understand why the monkeys didn't go into the cave because apparently the reasoning behind the people on the boat was, I guess they're afraid of the dark, but was that shown anywhere else in the movie? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember darkness in any other part. Because yeah. the jester was very mad that they did not, he didn't, they did not follow them, but I guess he solved it anyways. So I don't know why he was yeah. so mad. And that was, yeah, that scene was the most, I felt the most tension, like dramatic tension mm-hmm. yeah. in the entire film. Because it was the I mean, only that's pretty good tension. We put people in a dark room, and you have no idea what's going to come out the other side. <laughs> well, and and that there's this warning of like the monkeys are scared to go in, right? Yeah. And then you introduce these fireflies that seem like so beautiful, and they're guiding your light. You know, there's this very kind of whimsical, like but scary, yeah, thing going on. You're still like, like, I don't know what's going on here, but it also puts you in that place of okay, there's going to be a good thing in here or a bad thing, right? Which I was leaning more towards. Since they hit so many, like, oh, here's Candyland and here's the China world. And I thought there was going to be another world that we were going to visit, like another good thing that the monkeys were scared of. Um, or a bad thing. There could have been, like, a monster or, or giant something in there. Um, but then they flipped it, which is probably why I enjoyed it even more. It was It was the jester all the time that did it. But then, once again, it doesn't make sense why the monkeys would not go in there. <laughs> right. <laughs> which then led to them going over a waterfall. Right. Which is, like... I'm sorry. It's one of the most cliched things <laughs> in films. Is if you're on a river, don't have your guys go over a waterfall. <laughs> yeah, there are so many waterfalls apparently in animated worlds because everybody's going over waterfalls in their boats, <laughs> and everyone survives. Yeah, no one ever. Well, not everyone. Oh, <laughs> excellent point, Dan. <laughs> How callous of me right. to forget about. Spoiler. <laughs> the China Princess. <laughs> Decimated. Very yeah. gory. I mean, all they show you is, is her head. I yeah, know. they keep showing you her broken head. It was very jarring times. for me to see that. I was like, oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. And then they do the song thing where it's like Marshall Mallow. He's like singing, and then she's also singing. They're singing the same song, but they sing like 
differently and then it comes together. Is that like a standard Broadway thing? But this one was strange because one of the songs was a love song. Mm-hmm. Right. Because so, I thought this was going to be the love song ballad that was going to hit. And then they split screen <laughs> to Dorothy. <laughs> yeah. Climbing like a mountain. <laughs> yeah. So it's like. Dor- Which she's good at. She's good at climbing mountains. Yeah. Because she grew up in Kansas. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, it, that was kind of strange just because it was, I mean, I guess it was unique. Yeah, in that it was, it was like one character singing about her own thing with a love ballad going on. Because usually love songs. I'm are glad you touched on the love song own. thing because I knew there was like something that felt off about it for me, and that's probably it. Because I was like, is this common? <laughs> yeah, I think usually love songs are like just the people right. in love who are singing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a strange thing to mash up. Which I really want to yeah, do, sure. like. And I don't know whoever listens to this podcast, but if you could email in, I want to do like a poll of Rio 2 love ballad between the frog and the bird <laughs> or, <laughs> or Marshall Mouse <laughs> and the China princess <laughs> because, because they're both singing to people that are like asleep. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> That's really that's, the, that's what I'm putting together here. <laughs> I, well, this will give me give away my vote. I, that was my favorite part. I think I said this in the last podcast of Rio Two. Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that love down. song was so fun. Yeah, that so you're frog. already swaying the audience. So now Sorry, there's not even going to be a, there's not even going to be a poll anymore. But then Marshall Mallow, when he started singing, <laughs> you, yeah. you're like, this is it. This yeah. is happening right now. His <laughs> voice is very nice. So maybe some of the ladies. <laughs> what? Do you know? Who played Marshall Mallows? Who was who was the actor? Oh, it was um. Hugh Dancy. That's what I was going to guess, and I didn't know if it was right or not. You were going to be right. Hugh Dancy? I always doubt I'm almost one. positive it's Hugh Dancy. I think it's Hugh Dancy as well. You Wish were all Laura correct. To win on Hugh that. Dancy. <laughs> 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 oh, man. It was also, we were talking about this, the whole repairing the China princess with, oh. his, with his marshmallow. I was hoping, with his marshmallow heart. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping it was going to be his marshmallow tears. Um, let, let's point out, it was not his marshmallow heart. Laura, where did he pull the marshmallow from? His it armpit? It looked like his armpit, yeah. <laughs> so we so were definitely joking around about his marshmallow. Like, mm. <laughs> like his frosting deodorant or his marshmallow yeah. deodorant. Like, mm. He's just like, mm. a little old spice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they probably could have done a better job staging where his hand was, like, looks where it like, I was just hoping he was going to, like, start crying to marshmallow tears and just, like, wipe them away. So that would have, yeah. Man, that would have been, right. been great. <laughs> then he could go fight the s'more monster. That's what I'm here for. I'm just saying, call me for the next one. <laughs> But that, of course, brings back the China princess who we had, you know, these numerous gory shots of her decapitated body. Multiple. Yeah. They really wanted you to see that. Like, it was very clear she had no head anymore or no body, whichever way you want to go with that one. (laughs) (laughs) Glass half and be half full. (laughs) But she gets stuck together with marshmallow gunk and is totally fine. Is totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. And they're now in love. I gathered nothing except for him protecting her at one small point for their love to exist. There was on the boat. Well, it was just a nice moment, apparently. Well, yeah. Well, the song that he sings to her that I didn't understand, it's even then. I loved you even then. It's like, when? We just met. That's what I didn't understand. (laughs) We met like 12 hours ago. I know. So I was like, when? And then I was like, maybe I missed a part of the story where they knew each other before, but I don't think so. So I thought that was a little weird. But 
Oh, they could have. That would have been a great connection because they're they're like they domains neighbors. border they're each neighbors. other. Yeah. yeah, he could have been like, and he's a high ranking military official. Yeah, he she should at least know his distance. Yeah, he, he could have been all like, I will volunteer to be her suitor because right. I know her and we've played badminton together. I don't know. We like <laughs> had good times. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing you think of with good times is badminton. <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking. What do candy people and porcelain people do together? Clearly, <laughs> probably. I guess not swing things. <laughs> they probably play chess or something. I thought Wiser was pretty well animated. Yeah, I liked Wiser. I thought he was reasonably well animated because he's big characters, like fat characters, are pretty hard to do and to keep like the jiggles looking okay and the. Um, and the jiggles and the wiggles and the, and the balancing and stuff. Yeah, and and when he kind of flew away, I thought that was reasonably well done. Mm-hmm. Um, Until he like <laughs> tried to make it like over the waterfalls, <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, it looked strange I, to me. Yeah. I thought his like flapping was all right, but yeah, the height for him yeah, didn't look like trying to get him up, over. Was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know that this. was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, I. I liked Wiser. But I thought that was that was some of the best like physical animation outside of the jester mm-hmm. that happened in the whole film yeah. was him taking off and trying to fly away. Just since so much of the rest of it was just walking around. Yeah. So I guess um, there's been a lot of talk about this movie and a bit of a controversy um, with financing because this is not one of the major studios it's summertime, I guess, is what it's considered. Is that the production company? That is summertime. Summertime Entertainment. Yes, is the production company. Okay. Which I guess commissioned Piranha. Which I guess Piranha always it has. It's worked with a lot of people, like Disney, Warner Brothers. So, how do you guys feel about, or have you read about the controversy? Right, how they um, basically fundraise with a bunch of people to get backers, right. which. Josh, you were talking about how some people were digging into 401ks to yeah, donate money. Yeah, well, there's, it's, it's really sad to read because mm-hmm. um, the discussions of the investors are happening on this like 800 numbers board like where, where you would look up if an 800, an 800, 1-800 number called you and you wanted to know who it was. Oh, mm-hmm. so this is like the 1-800 number of the production company? I think it's the fundraisers because oh, okay. the, the whole board, it's like 20 something pages long now. But in the beginning from a few years ago, like 2010, when they were first fundraising for this film, it's like somebody saying, somebody says they're making a movie. This, per, this number called me. They're trying to make a movie. Does anybody have any info? And then suddenly fast forward to like a few years where things are starting to go south. And this is where all the investors are talking to each other about the money they've lost and just kind of the the downward spiral of this whole thing which yeah it's well, some of them like are. the uh the interviews that have been coming out with um the executive producer yeah mm-hmm. who says he claims that it was like a conspiracy against them by hollywood to keep right. them down to shut them out yeah 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 and i mean i don't know hollywood politics but it also just wasn't a very good movie. Yes. Yeah. I'm, s- I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know a lot of people work really hard on these things, and so you don't want to, like, critique people's hard work too badly. And but. there's so many bloggers and everything out there, like Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, th- 
Hollywood isn't like one team of people sitting around a table. Anyone can talk about the movie, and I feel like so many independent people reviewed it poorly too, so that theory can't be. Yeah, well, I mean, the Rotten Tomato thing is very interesting because the critics are at like, was it like a sixteen percent? Then sixteen, yeah. But then the reviewers are at like an eighty. Audience reviews. Audience yeah. reviews. Was it that high? It's pretty yeah. high. Yeah. And that wow. was something I was thinking about talking about too because a lot of people were like, well, my kids loved it. And that I read right. through some of the audience reviews. And it's kind of one Well, of see, things. it's like for me, this is, uh, it's hit on par with like some of the other like planes that came out, which is also Piranha Studios and um, Turbo. And I mean, like they're these, these big budget ones that also have, they're not like hitting strides in story and plot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they're just running into formula and this is, still one of those anime movies that hits the child formula and then um, just kind of puts in some jokes and makes a bunch of characters for marketability. And that's kind of what has turned into this. But I mean, if you're, if this is going to be like your breadwinner, like your, you know, your break into the industry, I, I feel like you should probably do a, a more of a, a complete job or a, a more well-oiled machine in, in the sense of story department and development. Yeah, well, and that's one of the other strange things about this whole, this whole thing that happened because I like the idea of people doing independent projects. I love independent films being made. I love you know people outside of just kind of the the Hollywood fundraising, Hollywood funding centers to be able to make their own creative products. I think sure. that's a great thing. Yeah, I love you know? Indiegogo and Kickstarter and all these projects. That are yeah, yeah, and some really great stuff comes out of that. Yeah. Um, this one, part of it was strange because the focus did not seem to be on the film itself. It was sold as being a trilogy of films. And then a TV series And afterwards. a TV series afterwards. And like video games and all Which this Which is also stuff. the same story to Turbo, the uh, DreamWorks film. They sold it. Well, they didn't sell it as a trilogy, but they knew there was going to be a TV show and merchandising afterwards. So they weren't worried about how the film did initially but i'm assuming that these investors are worried about how this film did because yeah because there's probably not much money probably left not much money in the coffers for to do anything more yeah and that's that's one of the things that laura you were kind of mentioning is how it's really sad to read the number of these people who are not like big multi-millionaire investors and in things some of them are and clearly they're mad of losing money but they you know lost a few hundred thousand dollars and it's not the end of the world to them but there's some who are like you know, I convinced my spouse to take a hundred thousand dollars out of our 401k and now we've lost everything. And what, so on the one hand, it's just like, Hey, finance one one don't take money out of your 401k <laughs> to right. invest in a hit or miss. Really don't take it out at all. Unless you're like in truly desperate straits. Mm-hmm. Well, seeing this, this is just going to set back, you know, the independent, um, financial side of trying to get an artistic animated anything made because now it's like this comes out breaking news it's like it's not a surefire win to like make a children's movie and then make a bunch of money um so hopefully that will deter future scammers not to do that but also it's just going to set back the industry because there's been multiple projects that haven't been gone through by major studios like blur is a big one they're trying to push through um the goon or the goons i forget it's this a graphic novel very adult material but uh they they did like a short piece they had um everything worked out and then 
but they just can't get anyone to back them. But it's like they're trying to do it, go through the right channels. So maybe that's something to say about that as well. <laughs> it's like even if you have like an original concept that has never been seen, well, it's like there's still those channels that will stifle you. But Well, I think you're right that it's going to – I mean, the those are people who – the people who lost money are people who clearly had interest in investing in animated films or films generally. Yes. And animated films cost a lot of money to make because right. there's so much – production cost that doesn't exist in like an independent live action film in a lot of ways because doing any an animated film is the same budgetary as doing like a blockbuster so would you go see it again <laughs> would you buy it on dvd unfortunately not i maybe i would if i had a kid or something yeah but someone to babysit like yeah just put it on <laughs> but for me i wouldn't put it in my I think I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wait until the special features. Oh, I might yeah. buy a Marshall Mallow toy, though. <laughs> <But> so soft. <laughs> yeah. They'll probably make him like um, a hard <laughs> plastic one. You'll yeah. be like, you had Why? one chance. <laughs> Just rub his armpit, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anything <laughs> comes out. Fix anything. Anyways. <laughs> Creativity. Yeah. Would you guys think of the book? A little insight into Ed Catmull's mind. Well, I loved this book. <laughs> um, well, just to give a little bit of background, it's not just about Ed Catmull and his career. It's basically how to be a successful manager or an attempt to be an excess, a successful manager in a creative environment. Yeah, and I would even go just an environment where you're trying to lead people just in general. Right. Like communication was yeah. a big thing in his book. So, yeah, what I loved about it is that I mean, I'm reading it. Of course, I'm a huge Pixar fan, but I have friends that are just in regular, they're, they're managers at regular <laughs> regular places. <laughs> they're managers at like businesses and stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, I'm reading that too. So I feel like it's kind of, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome um, for the business world. Yeah, when I started reading it, I recommended it to the producer I work with because he, he also runs into a lot of these creative problems trying to run a studio mm -hmm. and so i was like oh man you should totally read this book it's gonna change your life <laughs> and he's been talking about it a he's ton. been talking a ton That's awesome. we used the post-mortem like today yeah we had a post-mortem today <laughs> yeah <laughs> great. yeah and the best part is that he doesn't preach about it he's not like oh i'm so amazing and this is how you should do it he actually he mentions a bunch of times he's like this isn't the only way to do it like he feels like he yeah. has to keep um reiterating there's that. the disclaimer of like this is just my thoughts on right things. yeah He's extremely humble and very smart. So this was just an awesome read. That's my overall take on it. I really like Ed Catmull. Just like you said, I mean, he just seems like a really, everything I've ever seen about him, he seems like a, just a genuine, nice guy who like has this passion for this stuff. And this book, like it, just about his character, like it clearly comes through that that he just wants to be better at these things and wants to produce good products but he's also dealing with running a for-profit company, but mm -hmm. um, but he very much seems to to care about both the process and the people. Like the whole the whole. Um, there was a lot of method to the madness when he brought up the whole aspect of sequels and how they're kind of necessary in the movie making biz, <laughs> just because of what you get in making a sequel, which I thought was very interesting and made sense. 
and it was good that he discussed that because that is like a big part now of the the Pixar machine because they were such a creative driving force in making original content in their early years and now it's like they've churned out I don't know how many sequels now I mean there was Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 but then now they're revisiting Monsters Inc Incredibles is now getting a sequel Finding Finding Nemo Nemo is getting a sequel and he's like it's just you have to I mean there was that whole thing of feeding the beast and nurturing the baby which there's still that I mean you you still have to make money and eat (laughs) Mm -hmm. so I just thought that was nice nod and a nice uh way of being like well we're not gonna like abandon things but we're still gonna like push forward with the creative endeavors and this is what's going to fund that or at least keep us afloat yeah and he was he seemed to be really honest in this book about he's very honest on a lot of things yeah about mistakes he's made mm-hmm. about mistakes the company's made about times when he thought he was doing things right and was totally blindsided um to find out that there weren't things that there were things simmering under the surface that maybe weren't great um, even, but also even with like successes. diving into like the director's mistakes and, and showing that it's like this, I mean, that was like an underlying factor as well. It's like find the mistakes, bring them out quick, which is like the Andrew Stanton mindset. Know that there will be mistakes, I guess. Well, how about one of the favorite chapters of the book for me, um, was when they were talking about the brain trust, which is basically, um, uh, I would say the Pixar leaders, um, and I think they said there's probably around like 12 of them that they'll put into a room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm they, glad to also find that it's not just directors they put. Yeah, yeah it's like same other here. people. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I always assume that. They, that. <laughs> yeah, I always assume that too. It's just like, oh, the brain trust is all the directors. But no, it's like right. you have the editors in there. You got like lighters. You got tech guys. Just everyone who. Everyone that they feel is can add to what needs to be done. Which is awesome because it also goes with his whole um, absence of uh, communication hierarchy. So basically it's kind of an open forum at Pixar. You don't have to report to just your supervisor. Anyone can talk to anyone, which is great. Um, Yeah, but in this they even talk about how they stage the room, which I thought was really cool because I'm in meetings all the time where we don't stage it properly for communication. They said how they used to do it where it felt like all of the directors were getting all the say and no one else wanted to talk. And then they're like, okay, we need to redo this. They remodeled the room, which is great. But then this one scene was about Pete Doctor, and they were he was like pitching, I guess, like doing the daily or something like that with them uh, for his new movie, um, Inside Out. Is that what it's called? Um, so they're talking about him pitching, and then it, it's amazing. They go into uh, people giving their criticisms for it. And it's funny because Ed Catmull sets it up. He's like, you know, Pete Doctor's like six foot four, the gentlest person. And I was like, oh gosh. And like Brad Bird's in the room and stuff. So I'm like, oh, are they going to be like mad? Are they going to, you know? Um, so I was like kind of nervous about it. But then he just starts talking about how Andrew Stanton gave this like amazing, you know, uh, constructive criticism and was like using metaphor and stuff. And then Brad Bird like disagreed with him, but did it in such like a professional way and stuff like that. And then they ended up at the end of the meeting, even though it was a lot of, um, constructive criticism like he had to go out there and change a lot of stuff it was still positive like and I thought that was so awesome because they don't really talk about their story writing processes a lot no you just assume like oh yeah they're all goofing around with toys in the room Mm -hmm. and they just come up with these jokes and stuff but that was really cool because what they were arguing about was like the core of the movie so the theme which is you know Pixar always has the best you know like underlying themes so 
That was my favorite part. Yeah, it's good book. to get a lot of backstories on a lot of the original movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it was like, oh my gosh, why? how is that even a thing? Because it didn't even look like, <laughs> right. the, like Monsters, Inc. was nothing like what was pitched originally. And even Up was like something completely different. <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh, how does that even come about? But it is just pounding at it. Right. And setting up this environment where anybody can be wrong. Yeah. Very candid is the word I had pulled yeah. out of the book. <laughs> is mm-hmm. uses that a lot. Which he doesn't hide how hard that is. You yes. know, because everyone, anyone who's been in not just a creative capacity, but just dealing with people generally, mm-hmm. like being candid is can be really hard. Yeah. Like when someone says, what do you think of this? And shows you something that may not be great. It can be really hard to not just say, oh, that's looking Mm-hmm. That's looking good. But to give that, like, honest feedback mm-hmm. that is said in such a way. Well, it's also a give and take thing. So it's like you don't want to be candid to a person that doesn't understand that you're being candid. Right. So it's almost like the only way it can really work is if both people understand. Because you don't want the other person to, like, storm off and be like, well, you just don't understand. <laughs> right, right. Well, and he talks about trust, like yeah. the importance mm-hmm. of trust. And part of that is, you know, someone like... Pete Doctor can take a criticism from Brad Bird or mm-hmm. Andrew Stanton or whatever because, A, they know that they're They've all trying the to make <laughs> yeah. the product as good as it can be, right. you know, that everyone is going after the the film and not at each other. Right. Um, and also that they've all been through this together, you know, so so I think it's great that they can get comments from anyone on the totem pole or in any role. And I think that I'm sure that they get great feedback, kind of unexpected feedback probably from different corners. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if a tech guy mm. may have some really good story feedback just because that person may be removed from, mm-hmm. you know, all the nitty gritty that you're constantly focused on. And they may be able to pull in that audience, the kind of every, every man, every woman audience member mm-hmm. to be able to say, Oh, here's something that didn't make sense to me or whatever. But, but when it's the directors or the creative people, they've all been through it before, mm-hmm. you know? And when someone's been through the same thing that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also like being a director, especially on like any movies, you need foresight into seeing the big picture, which a lot of people, I know, especially working in animation and having like you get your scene and you're working like your scene, but you don't get to see like the big picture of what, you know, the storyboard guy has done or the, the director of the spot has done. And it's like, you just get fixated on something super tiny and it's, it's not good mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes to do that. Cause then you overanalyze something and it's like, that's just not, that's not going to work even though you think it's like the best way to do it, which is good to like have a group of people that's been in that scenario and have, seen like beginning and ends to things that they've they've done and completed and kind of help guide you through that (laughs) right which is awesome yeah they had also mentioned that um when uh the whole merger with disney happened that their brain trust was just like the executives people that weren't even filmmakers they would give notes to animators yeah and and they they were mandatory notes yeah which is nuts Mm -hmm. so they went in and kind of restructured the whole thing which you can kind of see how it works from you know the films that they were doing i think well i think it was bolt or something like that where the transitions were starting to happen but then you know they had the better movies after that you can kind of tell it's because they just kind of 
put people who are actually filmmakers in charge of and you're right there weren't mandatory notes they're just idea suggestions you didn't have to take them but it's just a conversation mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i thought that was really interesting i didn't realize disney worked that way for so such a long time with executives and stuff like that so yeah well it's it's that whole bottom line you have to yeah turn a profit and i think it's just you see some of that in, um, if you ever watched the documentary, Waking Sleeping Beauty. Oh, yes, I've seen that one. Yeah, which is, I mean, that one's largely about, like, the executive craziness going on at Disney during the Disney Renaissance and um, just what the artists were dealing with, with the constant, like, mandatory notes given by people who weren't the creators. Right. Who were the executives. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he even talks about, like, that they'd realize that the notes would be conflicting sometimes. Yeah. Like, what do you do in that <laughs> case, right? Like when... Well, that happens quite often. Yeah, in real life, that happens <laughs> quite often. We get that. Yeah, we get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, and if and if they're mandatory, <laughs> it's really difficult because you don't know who do you listen to mm-hmm. and then who gets mad at you when you don't do it right. And right. so, Especially when there's a hierarchical level. Like, they, they were saying mm-hmm. that there's a hierarchy in the structure, you know. If you have management who are considered management, it's like, who do you... Where do your loyalties lie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get a note. Yeah, and he said on that Disney thing, Ed Catmull says that when they first went there, they realized that the executive suites were like this, they were separated by a huge door mm-hmm. and walls from the artists and everything. And then the executive suites were like these big open windows, windowed rooms, like top floor. Yeah, it was like yeah. the best spot. And it was separated and purposefully set up to be like a gate to keep... Mm-hmm. the other people from getting in. And he said that when they first got there, that he and John Lasseter, they turned that big open room into, um, or they, they got rid of the offices and turned it into a story room, a big story room for the story people at Disney to work. And that he set up his office, his and John Lasseter's offices to be like covered in windows with doors open in the middle of the creative stuff. So mm-hmm. people could feel like they were part of it and could just come into their doors and talk, which you know I, know, I know they say, you know, story is king over there at Pixar all the time, but, you know, it's pretty good. The top floor story. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I really liked about the book um, was the chapter about Notes Day. Remember that one where mm-hmm. basically they were because they're growing so much and how we were talking about earlier that they do have people that trust each other and have worked together for so long, but they're growing. So they kind of have to spread that culture to everyone. So everyone still has to trust right. people that they haven't worked with. It's before. almost like don't do the Walt Disney thing where it's like, mm-hmm. don't instill, you know, kind of right. hide the magic. <laughs> yeah. And so notes day was this whole concept of everyone give your feedback on how we can improve things at Pixar. And they took notes from everyone, even from, they're like, even a chef we like asked, you know, so everyone, it was mandatory that, that they uh, participated in it, but they said everyone did. (laughs) Everyone filled out the survey. Everyone cared. And they actually leaped through every survey and put together all these seminars that people could go to. And I just thought that was awesome. They closed on offices for an entire day and everyone could learn and talk to each other. Um, about everything and just being in companies before they would never even think about (laughs) doing something like that I just think it was a really cool idea for management to really open up communication with people in that manner and then he said that they they put a bunch of those into practice like he said that there were like a dozen of them that they put into practice right away and there are like 40 more that they're 
kind of studying or looking into how they could put that into practice. Which is great. Because, yeah. you know, when workers see that, they're like, oh, wow, they care about what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> really the investment listening. in your you know, yeah. time and effort is mm-hmm. amplified. Yeah. So like, well, absolutely. They are hearing me. Mm-hmm. And it gives you ownership, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. one thing that a leader always wants, I think, in an organization is for the employees to have ownership over the product. Right. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, like whatever your product is, whether it's a creative like a film or, you know, if it's like getting a bank teller to care about their job or to get, you know, whoever it is, whatever work. What did you guys like not like about it? One thing I wondered about uh, that he doesn't talk about is. Pixar is in a very special place beyond being a, f- a movie studio, but they're also, they have a lot of money, mm-hmm. which when you have a lot of money, you can do things like well, I mean, take a day where no one works, or right. you can do things like provide all different types of care for and people services, yeah. and services. Yeah. And, and they even, he talked about spending $2 million on like failed animation projects yeah which in the long run i mean like yeah if you have the money you could do that but it's like oh man smaller companies it's like and i guess if you look in the scheme of things it's like okay if their main project costs 300 million dollars then two million i guess is a splash in the bucket but oh that seems like a lot of money (laughs) yeah well I, i would i would love if he would have talked some more about when they were struggling, you know, when before right. Toy Story, when mm-hmm. they were still just doing commercials and Steve Jobs was just pouring money in and trying to sell them, which I didn't realize multiple times that yeah. Steve <laughs> Jobs sold was like, Microsoft. yeah, that Steve Jobs was really trying to sell them, yeah. um, which nothing against him. Like, it's totally yeah. understandable. Like, but the fact that I, I wish you would have talked about at that time how they kept people motivated. You know, if they knew, if he and John Lasseter and maybe Steve Jobs and a couple of people at the top knew that their goal was to create an animated, the first CG animated film, was that desire like permeating through the whole company? Like did, if you're a small company and you don't have much money or you don't, you can't give all you want to give necessarily to your employees just because you don't have the money for that, you still want to build that ownership. And so like if you're, if you're making the first computer animated film and you're excited about it, I can see that being something that keeps you at your desk, even if you're not getting paid that much, or even if it's you know yeah. taking away time from family or whatever other thing. Because at that time, they didn't have a pool. They didn't have Pixar University. They didn't have you know these wonderful spaces yeah. or a cereal bar or whatever. So I would have liked to hear him talk more about that. The, more, the struggle of finding the vision. Yeah, because just in real life, because if this is for managers, most managers... I mean, some who are reading this are probably in charge of like Fortune 500 companies, but a lot of people are going to be small business people or mm-hmm. people who are running, if they're in the entertainment industry, small studios or theaters or whatever, or even like mid-sized, you know, what do you do if you have 50 or 100 employees yeah. versus 1,200 like they do, and you don't have billions of dollars to spare? That's a good point. He does, though, just like kind of, yeah, he does try his best, though, to break it down to like the very bare principles of like yeah. you know especially because the last chapter is just like all the bullet points like here's what you should do <laughs> you know? um which are pretty basics but yeah I, I didn't realize that you never really hear about the whole team on toy story i only ever hear john lasseter's name have yeah, you ever like true. right like behind the scenes stuff i don't even know how big the team was it's, putting that all together well i know the writers were him andrew stanton joe ramp the story artist mm-hmm. joss whedon and Pete Doctor. Oh yeah, Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon wrote a bit on Toy Story. I forgot about that too. Yeah, but the He's four in the credits. It's really funny. Yeah, say. yeah. <laughs> I think those four are the main ones that, that you hear about. Right. Worked on it, but yeah, there were a hundred plus other people yeah. <laughs> who worked on that film, 
Well, this is a great companion to reading this made me think, oh, I need to watch the Pixar story again, mm-hmm. that documentary by Leslie Iwerks of just how it came about, you know, because that goes into some more detail and personal interviews mm-hmm. with all different people, including Ed Catmull, about what was going on at different times. And again, it doesn't go into great detail, right? but it's a good kind of companion to see what other people are saying about the same things just from the director's chair or from the editor's chair as a tech person or whatever. So not just the manager side. Yeah. I would say another good read is, um, droid maker, which is follows the, the history behind, um, George Lucas and ILM and like the, the ranch and all that. And kind of, it was, it was nice to see that like his, his backstory aloned with the, uh, droid maker so it's like yeah this this seems right <laughs> so there's no fluff he's he's yeah. he's very candid in this book um, yeah with the whole steve jobs and everything thing but that's also a good read if you want to dive deep into the early um days of pixar and kind of when they were working you know when george lucas was fitting the bill and even before that um the dynamic at um the university in new york i forget what it was called um, oh yeah, I think it was just New York Tech. Is it New York Tech? Yeah. And the guy was trying to make the uh, the tuba film. One other thing that I, I wonder what you guys think about, which is I also really liked the chapter on the brain trust and was fascinated to see kind of how it works and um, the importance of being candid and stuff. And But he also kind of treats the brain trust as like something that can be applied anywhere. And I'm just wondering what you think about that, because I thought that was kind of a a big statement to make that any company, right, creative or, or creative, not, creative, yeah. Even uh, well, I mean, like I feel like in the book it was even like if you're not in a creative company, you can still kind of use these, you know, points. And because uh, really every company should have some creative aspect to drive forward. You can't just be stuck in your own. I mean, you had that analogy about the train. It's like most companies are considered trains where they, you know, derail or have train wrecks. And it's like, you don't want to be a train. You want to be the, the tracks or laying the tracks. Right. Which is way more creative because it's like, how do you run a train through a mountain? (laughs) 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 Or how do you run track through a mountain, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think the bare bones of it is just having a group of people that you can trust, that you can talk to, and don't... um, don't try to do anything super solo because I, I know just in past experiences I've had bosses that just think that they don't need to consult anyone else, you know? So I think, yeah. I think the, like the core thing he's trying to get at is you need other people to help you with ideas and stuff like that. Um, probably not in the same way the brain trust works because they're talking about, you know, movies and stuff, but in right. another company you do need to have a group of people that are kind of on the same page. You can talk to openly who've been through the same thing though. It's important. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. Which is pretty rough to try to find a company, I guess. Yeah. And, and a manager needs to be willing to listen to candid feedback. Right. Mm -hmm. Because that's a, I feel like that's one of the most, that's one of the most useful. That's my word. Like that's my takeaway word from the book is candid. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Which is, you know, I've never been a manager over anything more than like a very small team. That's not permanent, but Yes, but the, I'm used to those as well. <laughs> yeah, but being, um, but being willing to hear feedback is, I feel like that's one of the most common things anybody's dealt with in 
in a work environment mm -hmm. is a boss who won't listen or the story of when a boss does listen, how important that is, you know, or when you feel like you could go up to, to someone higher up or just anybody else in an organization and say, here's a problem that I see. Mm. Just take it under consideration, mm -hmm. right? This is not a mandatory note, <laughs> but this is a. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't conflict. <laughs> right. <laughs> so a recommendation, would you recommend this book? Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, same here. I was trying to think of a holiday that's some maybe person's birthday. Father's Day. Father's Day. I'm buying it for my dad, that's hey, for sure. cool. And this podcast, I think, is coming out. Oh, yeah. Oh, on or after perfect. Father's Day. So, <laughs> yeah. Getting it for my dad. He's a manager. I'll wrap things up here. Next time, we'll discuss the new DreamWorks film, How to Train Your Dragon 2. If you'd like to get a hold of us, feel free to email animcasts at gmail.com. That's A-N-I-M-C-A-S-T-S at gmail.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at animcasts. Okay. Goodbye. Oh, sorry. Oh, did you guys want to say goodbye? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How do we end this? <laughs> yeah. See ya. So <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs>